Tap Rack Bang is a podcast all about learning from misfires. Our show should detail historical methods of struggle and critically analyze them through a historical and modern lens. The current episode we're talking about here is diving into the current gun culture environment within the U.S. We talk about how this environment developed, why it is the way it is, and what it isn't. But should be. We want to focus on analyzing the differences between mainstream politicking and the underlying roots of our problems. We want radical solutions for our problems, not symptomatic treatment. All right, um, so I'd like to introduce myself and my co-host. Um, I'm RTB ASAP, um, RTB ASAP because I initially misnamed the podcast, and then my co-host over here. <laughs> I'm Insurgent Ipa. Okay, and uh, so together we're making up the hosts of the uh, Tap Rack Bang podcast. So what we want to do is, again, as the intro said, kind of give a, a, a deep dive into different forms of historical struggle involving firearms or not, and talk about how they had successes, how they had failures, and what we can improve on in the future. Um, so our current episode here, Modern Gun Culture, uh, we can analyze that as pretty primarily right-wing, and it's got large lobbyist groups that attach itself to the political apparatus that we live in. Um, and mindsets about firearms are commonly guided by this. So most firearms owners could be members of the NRA, um, or they could just be fervently right-wing um, the, the kind of dichotomy that exists really furthers this. Um, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I think that when you look at where people are getting their firearms information, uh, it's, it's really driven by these organizations that have a directed motivation, like the NRA or uh, Gun Owners of America is like the new one that's kind of taking the place of the NRA. Um, both of these organizations, of course, are coming at this from a very conservative mindset. So it's, it's definitely feeding into this... Uh, this type of politic that we're seeing because it's the only source of information that gun owners really have um, fed to them. Exactly. And that's, that's really carried into um, the online discourse, right? So we look at YouTube channels like um, maybe not in range TV, because I feel like that's a pretty unbiased view of different things, but we can, we can look at uh, definitely like Mr. Guns and Gear, um, Demolition Ranch, Shows like this that are almost explicitly right wing and definitely very machismo. Oh yeah, I mean, look at military arms channel. They've got you know, kill a commie for mommy T-shirts on. Yeah, so everything is just so politicized within these current spheres, and it's it's become normalized, right? So we don't have the ability to talk about firearms from a leftist standpoint without at least sounding maybe not ridiculous to our comrades, but um, maybe out of place. Yeah, I think that the, the, the gun culture aspect of it has really kind of fallen out of the conversation. I mean, leftists in the, at the turn of the century, in the early 1900s, you had you know, anarchists like uh, uh, Emma Goldman, and then you had people like um, Ella Baker and others that were just constantly talking about armed struggle, were talking about self-defense, and that kind of fell out of favor, uh, you know, partially due to the Red Scare, but due to other things as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, we have prominent thinkers among leftist thought. Even Marx said the, um, that the under no pretext should arms be surrendered, the under no pretext slogan. Um, so we have all of these previously existing thinkers of arms within leftist you know, environments. And it's kind of been, maybe not stolen, but it's definitely been capitalized upon by... Uh, right-wingers because of the the machismo elements so militaries have been historically mostly men um there's the 
there's like the the physical the physicality of firearms right so like war was traditionally fought by men um and we we need to take that and look at it and kind of just say that this isn't necessarily all of struggle because like feminist rights movements um any kind of struggle that involves an underdog coming in and like taking power back into their own hands whether it involves firearms or not is directly linked to kind of what we're talking about here i think it's important to note also that american gun culture is kind of unique in the world largely because of its whole settler colonial history you know guns have been seen as a tool of domination by uh the white basically ruling class. And because of this gun culture has really been infected with things like, you know, machismo, uh, chauvinism, racism, all of these things. And you can tie these back to, you know, the conquest of the West. You had all of these white invaders coming in, taking up land, holding, holding down their, uh, stolen lands from, uh, basically reacquisition by the actual owners. And so this kind of stuff is just, seeped into the modern culture today but it really is just a part of a long history in the united states in particular of just this soured toxic gun culture yeah so this kind of talks about our next point right because it's so surrounded by controversy it's been used by the oppressors for so long but it's also an important tool for militant struggle um firearms kind of represent the power imbalance and how easily it can shift um, the tool to take a life, of course, being used primarily by the oppressors to um, either enforce their beliefs upon the, the people without a means to fight back, and oftentimes in fascist regimes having arms confiscated from the population, um, just kind of furthering their dictatorial mindsets, which is where the ideas of anarchism and, in general, leftism, even in its authoritarian forms, coming in and saying, hey, give the power back to the people. Mm -hmm give the power back to those who run everything, you know, uh, um, a, a dictatorship of the proletariat in the sense that it says the people who are the workers, the people who perform the labor that allows society to continue deserve to have a say in how their labor is used and furthermore, how their society is run. Well, it... um, so we can use this to kind of blend into our next point, right? So how controversial they are and how everything in modern society is politicized, but whether or not that's politicized in a way that assists in understanding any roots that it may have. Um, yeah, I was going to actually interject. Uh, one second, I'm trying to get my mouse to work. Yeah, basically, I was going to interject and say that the, the whole narrative of the gun culture being something of, of domination and of being, you know, a tool of the, the white invaders is part of, partially due to the media bias of even back in the 1800s. You had these stories of romanticized gunslingers fighting to defend their town against bandits and invaders. And those bandits and invaders were actually the people that were trying to uh, reappropriate capital from banks through Wells Fargo, stealing stagecoaches and things like that, uh, but also native peoples that were using guns to actually defend their homelands. So firearms do have a critically important part in the actual defense of the downtrodden, but those aspects tend to get spent uh, in a way that they are seen as being negative, that they're being overly aggressive, while the aggression of groups like the military or uh, uh, militias, sheriffs, other things like that are glorified. So, yeah, it definitely, it definitely plays into that. So, 
um, moving on, I guess we can kind of call this there and say that uh, we have to look at the history of these firearms and how they were used and kind of reappropriate that into the modern era. And that requires a lot of education of our history as, as militant strugglers. Um, but again, in today's society, everything is political. And this is often driven to, um, especially in firearms, right? So we have school shootings, we have mass murders, we have all these atrocities committed in our societies that are endemic to the culture. Um, and oftentimes that's further applied to gun culture. Like as you were saying earlier with like Kilakami for mommy t-shirts and shit. Like it, it does start to, it, it wears on you, right? Because all of these weapons of destruction are held by you know our enemies well and especially for people that are used to being downtrodden it's 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 kind of a scary thought you know when you have only experienced firearms from the perspective of somebody who's being oppressed by a police officer who has been chased by uh ice who has had white supremacists march through your town with firearms firearms can be a very terrifying thing and they do not seem they don't seem empowering in the type of climate where the only thing you see is your oppressors wielding them against you. And so that's part of the narrative that has to change is we have to say, we have to take power for ourselves. We should not just allow them to have control over what firearms mean for society. Absolutely, yes. So, and with that, it, it brings a lot of complications as to, as to how to actually redirect this energy that's been kind of pushed on them. They've almost been, like, it's an idea with no ideological backing, right? Like, no ideology, like, lays claims to firearms. Um, so this idea of a gun culture kind of exists independent of the guns themselves. And oftentimes that's pushed by exclusively right-wingers, and um, as such it's applied to, like, settler colonial states. Um, like, in 1945, or in 46, uh, with the Balfour Declaration giving land to uh, Jewish settlers and uh, people fleeing from the German Nazis, then just taking over Palestine. Um, so, like, it was giving an oppressed group authority to take over another group that was, you know, just sitting out there, living their lives, dwelling on the land that they've lived on for centuries, even. Um... So I'd like to shift back to the U.S. here because I, I did take a digression, but um, I would like to talk about a, a term that I recently read about from a comrade of mine, Exiled Consensus, talking about emotionally potent oversimplifications, and he uh, he described it as a very simple schematic. It's it's blame onto an internal external agent, so firearms. It's used as a political distraction, which is gun control without historical backing or even looking into the past to see what these regulations have previously done. And then it allows people to ignore any root cause, which is a cultural shift into projected violence, right? So we have all of these, these three main points, right? They come in and they make it very easy for people to latch on to this idea. They may have an emotional, instantaneous response to this idea. And their, their response is generally shifted one of two ways. Like, you, you support gun control because you don't want to see children die. Like, who doesn't want to see children... Who doesn't want to not see children die, right? We want to be able to live long lives. And then, or you jump to this idea as, like, per, uh, individual freedom. And, and the two ideas aren't mutually exclusive, but the oversimplification makes it so. Um, and so, this idea, I believe it was Chomsky. I can't remember the book. I think it was something 501. But... Uh, and I'm not slugging for Chomsky, of course, but 
the the point is, is this oversimplification can be used to divide societies and it can divide um, us as people and we should use this as a chance for education because if you're able to point out that this oversimplification exists and kind of take a deep dive into it and have a conversation and then push past it to kind of understand the root cause so that we can have radical root-based change then we can actually move forward as a people. Well, and I think right now we're actually kind of seeing that people are starting to realize that there's been this gross oversimplification uh, with, for example, the bump stock ban that's happened recently. You have all of a sudden seen a bunch of right-wing people that think that, you know, conservatives are, uh, you know, the best friend in the world to, to guns starting to wake up and realize and starting to have conversations that might lead them away from gun, from the right-wing gun culture by realizing that, you know, Reagan was the one that made the gun laws bad in California, realizing that Reagan and Bush were the ones that made gun laws nationwide the strictest that they've uh, ever been. So... There's starting to be that conversation, but right now there's not a politic that's invading these conversations and saying, hey, there is a deeper and more systemic reason why gun control exists, and there's a deeper reason why we have these societal problems that are creating the, the social dysfunction that leads to these uh, tragedies. So it's, it's a, a duty of leftists to actually go into these spaces where you may not be comfortable and actually to talk about that. Yeah, and the, the biggest challenge that comes up is to be able to push the, the leftist perspective without immediately being disavowed, especially with how the Red Scare propaganda, um, essentially all of this anti-communist or anti-libertarian socialist action has been taken against our societal consciousness, right? So any form of class consciousness is a direct threat to a ruling class. And so that direct threat is often met with extreme state repression, like we saw with the Haymarket anarchists, um, like we saw all over the U.S. through labor movements, through the 1930s Communist Party in the Deep South. Um, pretty much any type of unionized work movement is fought back with state suppression, and any type of idea that could bleed into modern society or in general class consciousness is immediately suppressed through means of either censorship or um, a divergent narrative. Right, and so we can we can take a look at this. We can see that they play a part. The firearms play a part, but the root cause, the issue that radical change wishes to attack, is the larger cultural issue, and, and this bleeds into racism, sexism, homophobia, hypermachismo, transphobia, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I can go on forever, right? But all of the excuses are for right-wing anger explosions. Yeah, and I definitely think that that's that's something that you can see. It's always right wing is always going to be reactionary. So anything that we talk about, whether it's guns, whether it's talking about how farms should run, any of these things will be turned into a right wing narrative. So uh, with, you know, farming, farming is seen as a conservative bastion, even though when you look at other places like Mexico uh, or other places in Latin America, agrarian reform has been really important. So why is it that the right has such a stranglehold on things like farming and firearms? It's, it's a part of this greater um, tapping into these areas that are dangerous for the state and then taking control of that narrative so that way those institutions like the farmers, like the gun owners, are pro-state. And it's, it's a really effective tool. I mean, there's a reason why the United States has been able to quash most rebellious movements uh, for such a long time compared to other countries which don't have a stranglehold over these material things like a f being a farmer or being a gun owner. 
Yes, exactly. So we have um, what's essentially state disinformation, right? So uh, all these propaganda campaigns led to uh, misinform people of various stripes that the state has their best interest in mind uh, with like farm subsidies and other such things when in fact they're being taken advantage of by other things that actually have control over the state. So we can look at that from the Monsanto perspective of uh, the GMO seeds that don't reproduce, so you have to keep buying seeds from Monsanto. And if your seeds happen to find any GMO traces from that company where they have a patented gene, they can actually come and repossess all of your seed, and you'll have to be forced to buy seed from either them or some other competitor. And if you want to be competitive in yields, you're going to need some GMO seeds unless you have some like old heirloom seed that you've been able to actually keep up and it hasn't become a monoculture and been eaten away by disease. But this is a, this is a small part of the discussion and it's, it's just relevant to the larger point of how different cultures are attacked by the state and then um, assimilated. So gun culture has been assimilated into a political statement where they're no longer an apolitical mass. The ownership is directly a political statement. Um, because you have the, the liberal gun divide, which is uh, if you own a firearm, you don't support gun control or you don't support or, or you moreover support the killing of children inadvertently through mass shootings, which isn't true. Um, you, if you are a leftist and you understand this, right, you, you can take a look at the, the cultures that pervade gun ownership and you can try and subvert them with ideas of like holistic engagement. Um, which is more to say that you shouldn't be a fucking bigot. Yeah. Like, maybe be good to people. <laughs> it's pretty simple, I think. Um, well, I think an, another important thing to talk about here is the fact that you have these these efforts by the state, of course, but there's always this marriage between capital and the state where capital is just there to make money. And so you have companies like Beretta, which is a family-owned business from the 1500s that has been continuously profiting off of any death that they can sell anywhere around the world. So they don't really care who dies or what their political affiliation is. Capital doesn't care as long as they're making a profit. And so when they can find movements that are going to promote the wholesale death of people, they're going to support those movements. Uh, Beretta was a huge supplier of, uh, of Mussolini and the fascists. And today, uh, or up until recently, Beretta was the supplier of pistols for the U.S. Army, so that helping them spread their imperialism around the world. And this type of consumer culture around guns has only gotten worse over the past uh, two centuries, especially during industrialization. But over the past century in particular, you're starting to see things like uh, guns acting as uh, these statements of wealth, these statements of political uh, leanings. I would say over the past like 15 years, especially guns have taken on this weird uh, political direction directly on the guns themselves. You have like the snowflake receiver or the, you know, uh, the the Gadsden flag and all of these weird. You remember? Things. Yeah. You remember Spike's tactical commercial, right? Yes. That weird one where it was like all the guys that, that for some reason they were at the barricade and they were like shooting at masked individuals in a crowd it, who were actually mostly unarmed. Exactly. It was a bunch of Antifa protesters, black bloc basically. And then it was these three fashy guys with all their typical stuff saying, you know, we'll defeat the uh, degenerate masses. And, you know, I'm paraphrasing, Which but is it's, hilarious. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. Yeah. And so now they, sn they sell things with like uh, these political guns that are in fact 
the very guns themselves have political statements all over them now. And these have become status symbols for people on the right. Yeah, so we can talk about this as a way to radicalize people, but I think at that point, right, where you, you're buying, you're consuming to the point of which you already have this distaste for um, an entity you don't even understand, right? Because a lot of this information that people, right-wingers and reactionaries get um, I shouldn't say reactionaries in this case because generally the people that I'm talking about are just ignorant. Yeah. Um, but it's pervaded by reactionary thought. And you have like Spike's Tactical making snowflake receivers, all this other um, horrendous things that just kind of don't make any sense when you think about it. Um, like why would you, why would you make this when in fact guns have traditionally been used for both sides conflicts it's it's just taking ownership over it um which doesn't work in the long run because it it loses a bit of your consumer base in the current society but different point altogether yeah so i guess the the good question to ask here is like how do we introduce these political ideas in our conversations and slowly radicalize others like how can we use firearms as an entry point mechanism into the left and i think groups like redneck revolt and uh john brown gun club take a good approach but I'd wonder if there's any ways we can improve this and if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that, you know, groups like the John Brown Gun Club uh, and uh, Redneck Revolt have been doing good. Of course, you know, they've they've had issues with uh, protecting uh, sexual harassers and things like that. But overall, the strategies that they're employing, I think, are, are, are being met with success. Basically, taking over and being present in spaces that are uh, traditionally only venues for the right. The Socialist Rifle Association is another organization that's been doing a good job of this, basically showing up at gun shows, setting up a booth with information, just being there to talk to people and for them to see that guns are not solely a right thing might get people that are maybe even gun owners that would consider themselves liberals to start thinking, hey, maybe there's a reason why I support armed Americans. I support being the, the people being armed, but I also... Uh, am socially progressive. I believe that in, in human equality and empathy. And those people, uh, you know, the, the liberals that are there or right-wingers that also have uh, no real political ed education who want to be independent and want to live in a world where they live by their own standards, just having there's somebody there who likes guns, who can have a conversation about guns with them, say, yeah, we don't like the state, but we also don't like bosses. You know, just those little connections can be a, a really good way for people to uh, enter the conversation. Showing up and having a range day and having a, a flag flying or something like that, wearing a T-shirt. You'd be surprised the people that will walk up to you and just talk because they're curious. And those kind of techniques, I think, are, are critically important. But I also think that we need to start looking at other things that the, the uh, right has been really successful at. Most... I mean, <laughs> almost all content on YouTube for guns is being made by um, people on the right. Uh, there are a few exceptions that are either basically unbiased and are just about the firearms, or uh, there are some leftists, but generally there's not that kind of uh, uh, basically presence in those spaces. There's not any leftist uh like magazines that are talking about guns doing gun reviews and things like that i know that you get into uh critiques of consumerism but if you don't have a presence talking about these things maybe actually introducing economic analysis to 
uh, and material analysis to gun purchases, talking about, you know, is this just for flash or is this actually something that'll be good for you in, in your uh, life and your struggle? Um, kind of anti-consumerism <laughs> within the gun culture, which is something that's kind of lacking, is a way that we can really start to reach out and make a difference. Yeah, like the the hundred dollar high points, uh, the the ones with like Ben Franks on them. Yeah, right? <laughs> uh, I still think that's one of the funniest ideas ever made for firearms. <laughs> but yeah, material things are political because they're a part of our material reality. And taking any materialist analysis of firearms shows that. Um, the way they're priced, the way, way things cost, um, it inherently makes it difficult to access for people of uh, lower income and lower class. So things bought with capital, they're a political statement because they kind of show, and, and in your case when you said like they, they have that flash, right? Um, that really showcases kind of what we're talking about here in the, in the case of um, the, the wealth disparity and... Uh, and how this affects firearms, because most people that have access to multiple firearms and most firearms collectors are, they have money. They have the they have the ability to acquire these things. And I'm all for firearms preservation and collecting, because being able to look back at history and analyze the conflicts with a modern knowledge of the firearms and their limitations aids us in understanding the struggle. Heck yeah. <laughs> which is what I hope. I'm a complete gun nerd. It's definitely, you know? yeah. I mean, that's, that's part of why we're both on this together is because we have different perspectives and different ideas about how to analyze uh, these conflicts that we'll be later getting into in further episodes. Uh, but for today, uh, the, the gun culture that surrounds these is, uh, is what I'd like to start with. And I think so far we've uh, pretty much wrapped up how gun culture exists currently. And I would like to discuss... Uh, more of what Redneck Revolts and John Brown Gun Club and SRA's tactics are in how um, they approach this to the masses. They try and give ownership back, right? They try and take over the instruments of the oppressors and use it, uh, use its and its knowledge for, you know, uh, leftist organizing. So I guess we should finally boil this down to uh, the current structure of modern gun culture is just to avoid politicizing the political. Um, except when Spike's Tactical loves to take their uh, heavily reactionary line, um, and, and obviously some other ex uh, exceptions. But it's also heavily used to propagate these emotionally potent oversimplifications, right? They're coming to take your guns. Who's actually coming to take your guns? The, the, the cops, like, exactly. right? So uh, this leads to pacification. People are just happy to own... The means to evade tyranny when they currently live under tyranny. They're they're being lied to about what they currently live under. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, what's what's actually going on here? So I think with that, um, unless you have anything else to add, we can step on in. Sounds good to me. All right, so that wraps up our section on what modern gun culture is. So let's talk about what it ain't. Modern gun culture is not left wing, and that segment doesn't lobby. It's a small, incipient movement. Very little mainstream acceptance um, of the left wing segment, I should say from either political mass, liberals, conservatives, the whole the whole mess, right? And this left-wing segment should be popular with working-class people because it focuses on, like, the material realities that we all face of being, you know, the, the lower class, the, the oppressed nation within a nation. Um, and I'd like to start by saying that the, the pre prevailing notion is that gun culture is right-wing, and because it is right-wing, um, that's kind of where anyone who is interested in firearms ends up leaning. Um, and, of course, following this up as another primary segment is the racism, sexism, and the rampant toxic masculinity within these movements, right? 
So left-wing gun culture should, and in its current iterations does, run counter to these concepts. Um, Redneck Revolt, SRA, John Brown Gun Club, we've all talked about them earlier, and we're not going to get into detail on any of them, but for the most part, they do run counter to these notions and act as very good buffers against reactionary thought in gun culture for the left. So that means we need to develop strategies to dismantle these notions. We need to dismantle racism, we need to dismantle patriarchy, we need to dismantle homophobia, transphobia, all of these that target the groups that inhabit the left, that inhabit workers' spaces. So the question is how? And um, to answer this, it's very individualized. Um, each area is different in who occupies it, and the problems are different everywhere. So we have to look at this on a case-by-case -case basis and work from there. But in general, we have to be fervent with our stances, I think. So, Insurgent E, would you like to comment on any of this? Yeah, I definitely think that that's, that's a, a good place to basically take this because you have this identity of anyone who is even remotely to the left. And, of course, in America, the left, as it's defined uh, currently, is, is pretty, pretty damn liberal and centrist. But the big problem is, is that anyone who's on the left is uh, basically painted with this brush that pacifism is the only uh, means to achieve anything. And so this type of like pacifism has basically colored what anyone who is socially progressive or empathetic thinks about the way that struggle should be carried. And the idea of revolution, the idea of uh, armed struggle is absolutely dominated by the right. And they have these theoretical enemies like, you know, the United Nations or Jade Helm or Obama trying to come back into power. You know, all these kind of things to try to motivate them to think that they're revolutionaries, even though they're just there to support the status quo. And these kind of things are, are really a, a domineering thing. Why hasn't the revolutionary idea of the left, why hasn't the idea of armed struggle been more widely accepted within the modern left? I think that's that's a big question that needs to be uh, answered, and it's definitely a tactic that's being basically ignored by the broader uh, left community right now. I think that's a, I think that's excellent points. In looking at that in retrospect, um, how often these uh, these movements have been quashed by the state is important in considering how we should approach it. But um, again, this doesn't leave us with any real solutions, right? We just look at the history and we see the same thing happening over and over again. We see history repeating itself. So really this isn't something that any authority figure can give anyone on how to solve this problem for you, right? You have to look at it for yourself and try and figure out that like this is what is happening, this is what you have to do, um, and then get people together and get your comrades to go do that. And especially on the pacifism point you made, we've both experienced comrades talking to us like we were just idealists or like trying to get people killed by talking about how the state uses firearms as a repressive mechanism. So we must look to our past and look at successful movements like the Black Panther Party, for example. Um, they showed up to the California state legislature with an armed protest and immediately gun rights were revoked for them. Right, that led to the current conservative called California, and if only it was. Right? <laughs> if only, if only everything was as conservatives imagined that it, it would be significantly better. But the the invisible boogeyman they point at in the propaganda they're fed leads them to these false um, conclusions. 
Well, and you got to remember that a lot of the the gun control that has taken over in this country, especially in places like uh, like California, they have their roots going back even earlier than that. When you had the Magonistas who successfully took over Mexicali and Tijuana, it was reactionary uh, anti-unionists from San Diego, from Los Angeles that mobilized to help the Mexican army quash this this uprising. And it was the Magonistas that lived within California that started to have the restrictions against you know, ownership or carrying of a pistol, things like that. So wherever you see these types of regulations, of course, it's it's directly related to where you see revolutionary struggle. Of course, the state is not going to allow revolutionary struggle. And the biggest problem that we see with the left over the past century has been elements that argue that we can win through electoralism. I mean, this happened, uh, for example, with, with uh, Che Guevara's last venture uh, which was in Bolivia, Bolivian Communist Party, in collusion with the USSR, wanted to basically quash any type of uh, guerrilla movement in favor of electoralism. And what did that win them? It won them their party being banned. So their pacifism achieved nothing, and they wasted the opportunity of actually having an armed struggle help liberate the poor people of that country, the peasants that did not have access to even a livable life. Yeah, so we see this time and time again how the uh, the more diluted segments of the left kind of take take control over that movement, right? Uh, it's it's almost as if the saying that every leftist organization is only as leftist as its most reactionary segments. So you can you can look at this and say that um, DSA is only as leftist as its most liberal caucus members. Which I think is fairly accurate to say, in the sense that electoralism has not made any gains, and it will continue to not. Um, in Germany, there was the Social Democrat Party that only succeeded to help the fascists. In, uh, in Italy, it was the similar way. I can't recount the exact history, so I'm not going to try to. But we see this time and time again, where we see the more dilute message, and it, it takes the spotlight. Like with Ocasio-Cortez, um, she is a, an excellent politician. She's doing her thing exactly as any politician should, which is to, you know, get your message out there and then dilute it so that it actually passes, which isn't what the left should accept in any real sense. If we don't get exactly what our demands are, it will only be used to disincentivize us from actually organizing, which is a lot of times what... Um, the the capitalist capitulation was is that they they capitulated to something that they could withstand um like with labor laws like okay we can get rid of slavery but we're going to have to um kind of make everyone work and now we're going to have to like make labor laws really lax so that we can have like children working and they can earn a pittance whatever you know everyone's poor so what does it matter and, and this is the kind of thing we continue to see even into modern days where they're finally starting to let up on the $15 an hour wage, but it's all a distraction or it's all a capitulation to the real radical workers. Like we've been fighting for a $15 minimum wage for what, like 10 years now or something? It's, it's been an extremely long time and we're only just now starting to see that $15 an hour wage start. And it's just starting when $15 an hour finally isn't livable anymore. You're still stuck between the two grindstones. Well, and of course, when you when you ignore tactics, I mean, that's that's the big problem is that when you box yourself into just electoralism, 
you're missing out on a, a major toolbox of different resources and different avenues of struggle that together will be successful. Electoralism is a tool that can be used, but it's a very, very small part of the tool. You know, as an indigenous person, it's nice to see that we have two indigenous women in Congress for the first time. That's real nice. But in Mexico, the same thing has happened. You've had uh, indigenous women, indigenous men serve in Congress, and the conditions for indigenous people in Mexico have not changed, except in the place where people took matters into their own hands. If you go to Chiapas with the Zapatistas, they took their destiny in their own hands. And so now we have indigenous women in all of the communities there who have a say in their future. In Oaxaca, they burned ballot boxes. This type of militant action here would be absolutely castigated as violence, as all of these things. So when we're talking about the, the, the broader gun culture, we have to realize that guns, protests, road blockages, all of these different tools are essential in a broader struggle against capitalism, against imperialism, and against colonialism. And for us to start to basically introduce this idea of a broader toolbox to the left, to people who have come to leftism from either liberalism or from libertarianism, uh, these people who have tried to find a, a different way of uh, looking at the world. When they come to the left, of course, you know, DSA is a big organization. A lot of people, that's, that's their first step into leftism. But if they don't see the tactics that have been successfully employed and have been unsuccessfully employed and learn when and where to apply each of those tactics or to how to employ those tactics in combination, we're going to be lost. And ARMS is, of course, one of the most uh, um, desperate ways for a people to basically rebel and to reach out and to reclaim their destiny. But it is a tool and it absolutely must be a part of the conversation and preparations going forward. Exactly. And I think this is why we both believe in a, a dual power formation, right? So we, we both want to see um, a sort of society arising within capitalism that uh, subverts the notion of the, the capital worker relation and the capital society relation to each individual. So we want to see a more individualist society come out of, or I guess a more communal society that still values the individual, which I think a lot of people either think isn't possible or think is idealist. Um, but realistically, what we're looking at is we need to empower people, and the best way to do that is through a communal structure that actually values their input. Um, and we see that in a lot of horizontal organizations, um, but we don't see that in our current political system. And this is where the tools that exist as, um, as gun owners, both of us, um, we can see that through a historical lens, these tools are very useful. And even if you don't use it for like an outright uh, revolution, which of course we're not advocating for, but we are talking about like everything as a tool and being able to protect yourself from aggressors is, of course, an extremely valuable tool. So looking at this, um, currently firearms are inherently political and we have to use this information and reasoning to further our understanding of our conditions and let us rise up together um, to elevate our status, to elevate each other as comrades. And that's the, that's the thing that the right misses, is they miss the camaraderie that the left has. Um, it's incredibly powerful, and you see this the moment you, you meet, talk to, and work with your comrades. You, you know that those are the people who will have your back no matter what. Um, pick you up from jail, or just take you to class in the morning. Like, it's very simple, but it's incredibly powerful, the, the concept of solidarity. Well, and I think that that's one of the big places where leftist gun culture is is really community building in a way 
because you know a trip to the range is a fun time it's where people are learning from each other it's where people are um a part of this community that's that believes in the same things and, and is preparing for the same things but also it's it's a very different experience because you are are your comrades and when you look at right gun culture you show up to the range and it becomes a big dick measuring contest to see who's got the biggest baddest most expensive gun and it's all about the individual and his prowess compared to everyone else instead of everyone collectively improving. I mean, when you look at like the Pink Pistols and other organizations like that, some of these uh, um, maybe not politically, fully politically uh, um, educated organizations, but organizations that are based out of these ideas of empathy, you have tremendous power because everyone's coming together because they believe in protecting each other, they believe in caring about each other, and they believe in training together. And I think that is, without a doubt, the most powerful part of leftist gun culture that we can offer is that um, essentially that of all leftist orgs is the camaraderie building, the solidarity between members, and the solidarity between uh, organizations even. Uh, so as as we have both experienced in different organizations and uh, so forth, we know that um, the power of the left isn't inherently down to the individual, though sometimes an individual may be very... Uh, aggressive and innovative uh, it really comes down to being able to bring people together for a singular cause and that is something that no right-wing movement can ever offer because they're so individualized and even if they are united under one banner uh, the moment that banner falters is the moment they all leave well so i, I, think, I, I, w I would basically sorry, say like the right unifies people under a single cause and their cause is nationalism they can basically point to something and say those are not us. We can therefore fight them. And that's the only kind of unity that they offer, is they offer the unity of a nation, whereas the left offers the unity of humanity. The fact that every person has a right to exist and that every person should be protected from undue harm, exploitation, domination, etc. So the left really can bring a lot more people into the fold because we're not limited by the constructs of the state the constructs of patriotism, nationalism, things of that nature. And yeah, of course, we can bring more people into the fold, but I think our bonds are even stronger based on how uh, how much we focus on the, the love between comrades, right? So I guess in our final, uh, our final couple minutes here, we're going to just finish this up, but uh, the love between comrades is extremely strong. Um, the amount of the amount of uh, work and effort you can go through for someone that's worked at your side and like sweated and labored with you, even though it's political organizing, it's still work, and you've built these relationships over time. It it really amounts to a lot more, uh, a lot more care and a lot more uh, efficiency w between people, right? You can you can be closer and you can maintain these bonds over distance or time or whatever what have you. Um, it, it allows for us to really come together and create a strong, impenetrable movement. Yeah, the, the idea that camaraderie is, is what makes the left and what makes guns different, I think, is cr incredibly important because gun culture on the left is not about the guns themselves, really. Gun culture on the left is about the utilization of guns for struggle. And why are we struggling? We struggle for each other. We struggle for our community. We struggle for ourselves. And this is all together. It's all a connected movement. You know, when we get together, 
sometimes you know leftist gun culture doesn't even involve um shooting guns sometimes it involves going out for a run or a jog it involves you know lifting weights or uh you know doing cardio exercises doing body carries you know any type of thing that prepares us we're not a mall ninja that's decked to the gills with uh, you know, the latest and greatest tactical fads and bags and pouches and, you know, whiz-bang <laughs> gear, what we're really focused on is actually the implementation of it. So a person can come to leftist gun culture with a $100 high point and a willingness to learn and a willingness to care for each other and a willingness to learn and overcome their own prejudices and and grow as a person and they can come to the leftist gun culture and they can be a part of something that is much bigger than themselves, but is essentially a part of them as well. Um, every single person matters and it's a big part of what we can do to make this uh, uh, a successful tactic. And yeah, with that, I think we've wrapped up everything we wanted to talk about. That's the, that's the gist of the whole situation is that leftist gun culture offers a more empowering experience for both individuals and the collective. So uh, with that, guys, we're going to close off the podcast, but um, I want to remind you that I am the co-host of this, T uh, RTB ASAP, with my comrade Insurgent E, and uh, with that, signing off. Adios.